For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good evening, everyone. So lovely to see you. Is, is that you, Nathan? So great to see you from Michigan. Wonderful. Been a long time. Uh, so, happy day after Mother's Day. <laughs> I think Tygen uh, gave a talk about Mother's Day yesterday, which I missed because this past weekend was the annual spring bird count, and I was out in the field all weekend. And uh, we found 88 species Saturday at Skokie Lagoons. And uh, we're still tabulating what we found on Sunday out at the Dixon uh, Wetlands Re uh, Reserve. And it was a lot of fun. But it was also serious because um, all this data that was collected over the weekend by many thousands of community scientists from all over the world is used by professional scientists like those at the Field Museum where I used to work before I retired um, to help us understand and figure out how to respond to important problems like, uh, like climate change. And it actually directly relates to the subject of my talk tonight, which is about our practice. Uh, I want to talk about practicing with our mothers. Uh, Mother Nature and Mother Earth. And uh, so the last Dharma talk I did was about practicing with nature um, by writing haiku poetry. And, uh, and that's one good way. Uh, but it's not the only way. Uh, Asian Nancy Easton and I have uh, led several camping sessions over the past, I don't know, five or six years where we spent a number of days walking and sitting in nature, and that's another way. There, there are really endless possibilities to explore. Um, in Zen, we are, we're frequently urged to ground our understanding in direct experience. And uh, my glasses are too... <laughs> uh, I, I, I found this, when I was first practicing, I found this instruction a little puzzling or elusive. Um, it, it really took me a while to, to grasp that they were talking about experience off the cushion as well as on the cushion. And, uh, you know, as students, we, we often, we turn to books, um, not a bad thing, we, we, we need to learn from ancient teachings about interconnectedness and dependent co-arising and suchness. But, but I actually think our actual awakening, or I'm going to use plural, awakenings uh, come not only from studying and sitting, but from paying attention to our senses and uh, investigating our own true nature 
as we directly interact with and respond to whatever we experience, wherever we are. So um, in this practice, we learn from all our many teachers. And when we spend time outdoors, we're learning to uh, accept nature as, as one of our most important teachers. Um, our founder, Dogen, told us that enlightenment is intimacy with all things. And, uh, and that is a wonderful instruction. But um, interconnectedness can, can be, feel like a cliche. You know, it's like a vague concept until we actually experience it. And then it's, it's like knocks us over with its power and its beauty. So when I go out, out in spring to count birds, I am uh, directly experienced this intense awe of witnessing one of the most spectacular phenomena on our planet. This is the migration of billions of birds from their various wintering grounds all over the world to the places where they're going to raise their families. And this, this, Amazing, I'm going to call it a miracle. It's been going on long before there were any humans on Earth. Something like 40% of all bird species migrate twice a year. So that's like 4,000 different species. And most people, I find, when I try to chat them up about it, they're not even aware it's even happening, even though it's all around us. So if you're not impressed with bird migration yet, I'm going to uh, give you just a few amazing facts. There's a bird called the Arctic tern, T-E-R-N. It's about the size of a robin. And uh, it travels about 50,000 miles every year. Um, it, it's raises its young in the Arctic, and then it flies to its wintering grounds uh, along the Antarctic coast, and then it flies back. Uh, there's another bird called the bar-tailed godwit, which is a great name, uh, and it holds the records for the longest migratory flight without stopping. So it flies 7,000 miles without stopping. Um, and uh, they get something, someone figured out that they get like 200,000 miles per gallon, if you would like, you, <laughs> if you would like translate it to terms that we mere humans can, can fathom. Um, so when I look in the eyes of a ruby-throated hummingbird, which weighs like an eighth of an ounce, um, and I, I look at this little thing and I say, oh, my God, you just flew here from Mexico yesterday all by yourself. I am just overcome with humility and awe. Um, there's, a, there's a pair of uh, birds called piping plovers. They're, they're uh, endangered little shorebirds, and, and they've been nesting at Montrose Beach the last few years. You might have heard about them. They're getting a lot of press. The, the Tribune's been writing about them and so forth. Anyway, at the end of every summer, Monty, the male, flies to Texas 
and Rose uh, flies to Florida. And then in spring, they both return to the same beach, which is like a speck on the globe. If you figure your your little bird flying from Florida and Texas, and they arrived on the same day. No one has any idea how they coordinate this um, or how they find the same beach, but they do. So I, I don't, it's not hyperbole to say miracle. Um, but just to get back to Zen, <laughs> uh, you know, connecting with nature, it's an important part of um most, if not all, spiritual traditions, not exclusively Buddhist or Zen, Christianity and Islam and Judaism all have mystical traditions that embrace nature. And of course, Taoism and animism are all about nature. For a long time, I had as my email signature, a quote from Albert Einstein, look deep, deep into nature, and then you'll understand everything better. So even the religion of, of science looks to, to nature for answers. Um, I was organizing some old computer files recently, and I was a little surprised to notice that several years ago, I did an entire Dharma talk on Henry David Thoreau. Now, uh, there was a man whose spiritual, creative, and political actions were all deeply steeped in the natural world. And he was part of a sangha, too. They called themselves the transcendentalists, and they looked for the divine in nature, not in church. I just finished reading a book by uh, Susan Cheever called American Bloomsbury, which which makes a very strong case that this 19th century Concord crowd, you know, Emerson, Thoreau, Louisa May Alcott, Hawthorne, Margaret Fuller, uh, she's a very early feminist, Poe, and, and so many more. They formed a, a genius cult, uh, cluster that transformed American thinking. And, and one of their radical notions was the accessibility of universal understanding. You could call that awakening. You could call that enlightenment. Accessibility of universal understanding to every individual through a combination of nature and our own inner processes. I'm going to call our own inner processes Zazen. <laughs> so, um, so if we look to our Buddhist connections, we go back to Shakyamuni himself. Uh, he meditated under the Bodhi tree. He was not in a temple. And uh, on the eve of his enlightenment, when he was challenged by Mara and the demons, and he didn't call on God in heaven. He pointed to the earth as the witness to his understanding. And he spent decades with his followers. They spent their lives in the wilderness, homeless, living on the land and whatever the lay followers provided. Um, there's a Thai Theravadan monk, Ajahn Chah, who I, I really uh, respect. He practiced in the forest tradition and, and he wrote, like the Buddha, we too should look around us and be observant because 
everything in the world is ready to teach us with even a little intuitive wisdom, we will be able to see clearly through the ways of the world. We'll come to understand that everything in the world is a teacher. Trees and vines, for example, can all reveal the true nature of reality. And he also said it would be a mistake to think that connecting with the landscape is all about beauty and serenity and butterflies and orchids. We can think of the landscape as sacred without denying that sacredness includes a lot of pain and challenges. And this is what helps us generate compassion and compassion basically for the trillions of sentient beings that have passed through and are here now. So this is what brings me to a suggestion of a way to practice uh, with nature. Uh, Gary Snyder, who I think I've never given a Dharma talk without quoting (laughs) my uh, all-time favorite. So he tells us that... uh, Beautiful wild places are special and extraordinary, like national parks. Uh, And we should cherish these remnants of wild nature and become intimate with them. But he also tells us that everywhere is special. Uh, We shouldn't think that nature is somewhere else. We shouldn't think that nature is someplace we have to travel to. Living in a city, um, we might, it might not be obvious that nature is an everyday experience, but it can be if we open our senses and our hearts. Trees and other plants are everywhere. Birds, insects, rivers, gardens, parks, everywhere. I mean, for that matter, we have a dandy ecosystem in our own digestive tract. <laughs> um, And in the city, it's easier also to see that the natural world has experienced serious problems, um, many of which are caused by humans making making poor choices. So Thomas Berry says, what we're experiencing in the degradation of the earth is a loss of meaning in life itself that calls for recovery of the sense of a sense of the sacred. So, you know, I could, I could list the problems, uh, habitat destruction, hydrological alteration, invasive species, ocean acidification, environmental racism, and uh, the billion pound gorilla climate change. But um, as someone who's worked in conservation for much of my career, I I know no one wants to hear about these problems (laughs) because it's painful. It's depressing. So I'll go back to what Ajahn Chah said. You know, practicing with nature can build our compassion and uh, lead us to this realization that We can act differently. We can act less destructively 
in our relationship with nature. And being in nature, I'll propose, will help, will show us ways to do that. It's circular. Uh, I'm going to quote Thich Nhat Hanh now. He wrote something called Love Letter to the Earth. It's quite beautiful. Just reading a very tiny part of it, but I, I really recommend it. The earth is not just the environment we live in. We are the earth, and we are always carrying her within us. Realizing this, we can see that the earth is truly alive. We're a living, breathing manifestation of this beautiful and generous planet. We are a living, breathing manifestation of this beautiful, generous planet. Knowing this, we can begin to transform our relationship to the earth. We can begin to walk differently and to care for her differently. We'll fall completely in love with the earth. When we're in love with someone or something, there's no separation between ourselves and the person or thing we love. We do whatever we can for them, and this brings us great joy and nourishment. This is the relationship each of us can have with the earth. This is the relationship each of us must have with the earth if the earth is to survive, and if we are to survive as well. So I had a talk this past week by two women conservationists who are doing amazing work in, in South America, and their talk was not depressing. It was joyful. It was joyful because they had found ways to made, make a positive difference, and they didn't pretend that everything is going to be fine, but they made it clear there's work to be done. And there's deep satisfaction to be found in doing that work. And they ended their talk by asking everyone to, what they said, find a way to do something. <laughs> they weren't prescriptive except for that. And I think I'm going to end the same way. Usually we hear about what we should give up to help the natural world. Consume less, drive less, stop eating meat, blah, blah, blah. But what about making a list of what we can do instead of what we should stop doing? So, like, take a walk by the river. Look at the stars. Learn the names of five different tree species. I mean, even taking care of a houseplant could be transformative if you're really paying attention to that living being. And... I'm here to say waking up to nature can be a whole lot of fun. Go on a bird walk. Oh, boy. So um, I'm honestly not expecting humans to solve the problems that we've all been so central to causing. I think that seems like just another form of arrogance, I think the earth knows ways to heal itself or herself, I guess, since it's Mother's Day, um, if we let her. Uh, I mean, just as one example, it's not trivial. It might sound trivial. Beavers 
can go a long way to fixing the hydrological mess that humans have created if we get out of their way and stop killing them. <laughs> I mean, before Europeans came to this continent, beavers made water available across the landscape to people, to plants, to animals. And we just, uh, we devastated devastated their populations. But I do think people have a big role to play. And and I hope we'll each figure out how we can be on the team. And um, I'll say that's what I think about when I recite the four vows. And uh, I would love to hear other people's thoughts, especially if you know anything about beavers. I just read a book called Eager. It's so great. <laughs> Nose on. I'm just noticing who's here. Other Hi, people. Hello. Hi. Yes. Um, I, I, were you calling on me? I'm sorry. Did yes, I, I was. I was. I was pointing, but of course you had no idea who I was pointing to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still bad at Zoom. I can it's take my glasses a, yeah. off now. It's, it's a skill for sure. Um, steep learning curve. I, I mean, I have a lot to say on this topic. This is a topic I think about entirely more than I ought to. It's you know, No, no, no. There's no such thing. <laughs> well, I, I will say not many things keep me up at night. Um, but but this is this is one of them. Uh, so I guess to get on to get on a little soapbox of mine, um, I think we need to be careful and you didn't do this in your talk, um, but I think we as Westerners need to be careful when we talk about nature and especially the use of the word uh, wilderness, because I think there's a specifically like Western conception of, of untouched, pure wilderness that we like to hold on to. Uh, but for instance, pick any given national park um, in the United States. Before Europeans came, there were Native Americans living on it intensively cultivating the plants, the animals, the landscape. We removed them and then called it wilderness, even though humans had been interfering in that landscape for thousands of years. Um, so I think that's, you know, it's problematic. Um, and you didn't use that word. So, but that's just my, that's my little soapbox about that. But I think we can draw a lesson from that, which is that there are ways of living with the earth instead of living on the earth. Um, I think there's also, you know, the transcendentalists certainly were guilty of this kind of romanticization uh, that's was kind of divorced from the actual history of the landscape and human involvement in it. Um, I think we also need to be careful with like the nature culture divide uh, because then that's a separation, right? 
And, and I think you addressed that nicely too, is like, we're not separate from this whole thing. We're not like humans and culture and man-made stuff over here and like pure untouched nature over there. Um, aren't, aren't human buildings as much an expression of our nature as living biological organisms as, as termite like, mounds? <laughs> thinking the same thing. Exactly. I mean, I, we're, we're behaving in the way that our biology, uh, you know, has us behave and that doesn't absolve us of responsibility because we're able to think about it. Um, but, you know, we're not one thing separate and outside of nature. So I'm monologuing. I'm, I'm sorry, but a lot, a lot, so much to say on this topic. So interesting and very important. I think like the way that humans conceive of their relationship to non-human elements in nature is going to be just absolutely crucial going forward. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope I hope it was clear that that was my point that yes we're, yes. we're <laughs> okay for anyone who's not familiar with the books 14, 1491 and fourteen ninety three uh, by a man called Charles Mann who wrote about what the this uh, hemisphere was like before Europeans came and then after Europeans came it's a pretty stunning. Uh, picture of what immense civilization was here pre-European, <laughs> um, you know, not wilderness, as was just said. Yozan, you have your hand up. It's just stuck this way. So, hi. No. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate uh, your talk and I appreciate uh, Wade's comments too. I mean, that the, the whole interesting, um, it's, a, it's a real danger to conceptualize wilderness as something um, pre-existing separate. And, you know, for all that I love uh, the transcendentalists, and I think on whole, they, they made a positive contribution. That's a real issue. My question, and I don't mean to be sour or grumpy about this, um, I really appreciate your emphasis on finding the things that we enjoy and doing them as a way to, uh, to heal the earth as possible. But when you say um, nature will, you know, the, the earth will heal herself if we only get out of its way, her way, what could that possibly mean other than the things you suggested that we not think about, at least for the moment? Eating less meat, driving less, uh, consuming less, being lighter, having a shitload of less children, fewer children. Yeah. What, could it, what could it mean besides those things, getting out of it, the way? It could, it could mean us vanishing from the planet, frankly. That's probably what's going to happen. Yeah. It's not, a, it's not a cheery message. And it's not uh, something for, uh, you know, to think about yourself and your children or your grandchildren, but somewhere not too far down the line. I mean, we're, we're, uh, we're, species come and go and we will come and go. We have come and we will go, I guess is one way to say that. And what, will, can do, what can we do if we want to stick around for a while? 
Um, I think pay attention is what I'm saying. Pay attention. I don't have the, I don't have a solution. I'm not running for anything. I'm 73 years old. So I'm, you know, not, uh, and my daughter's decided not to have children. <laughs> I have a limited horizon of personal interest. Um, but I care, you know, I think if we pay, att- I, I just think if we pay attention, we won't be so dumb. I'm just like, I really believe in this concept of awakening to what is obvious if we aren't, you know, don't have our fingers in our ears and, a, you know, or hands over our eyes. It's you know, we have a lot of problems right now. We have a pandemic. <laughs> we have the oceans dying. I, 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 I don't like to talk about that in that way, even though it's the coral reefs are bleached and dying. These are spectacularly huge. But if you look in the long run, I mean, the earth is going to be okay. It's just going to keep going for a really long time. I mean, not forever, but for a really long time. So, you know, we need to pay attention to what's in front of us and be wiser, be kinder, be more compassionate and be more joyful. That's, that's the, it's our best shot, I think. I don't know. Does that answer your question? It really, there's, uh, uh, otherwise, uh, you know, I'm not expecting to have an answer that will get a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> That's the level that we're talking about here. Well, I, I will nominate you for the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> um, and, well, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it doesn't answer my question. Of course, there is no answer to my There is question. no answer, right. You know, but, I, but it's always worth spelling out a little more. Particularly when there's any hint ever that suggests, I've seen it everywhere. I've seen it in Buddhist groups. I've seen it at international socialist organization conventions. The suggestions that we really don't need to do anything, you know, just live our lives and be happy. And which you were not saying, which you were not saying. But anyway, so that's, I just wanted to have you spell it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is if you, if you pay attention, you will not live your life the way you're living it now. You will. It will be so obvious that that is crazy. <laughs> uh, and you have to start where you are. So if, if where you are is starting with raising a houseplant, maybe that's where you are. It's not a bad start. Any start is not a bad start. I don't know. Uh, it's too hard a topic. I should have picked an easier one. <laughs> wait a second. Oh, wait. There's someone else. Matt's got his hand up. Wait, already had a shot. So we'll give Matt a shot first. Good, Laurel. I don't think it's too hard of a topic. You know, we can talk <laughs> about suffering or we can ignore it. <laughs> yeah. We're all going to die. The human species is going away sometime. Yeah. Maybe in a million years, maybe in 300, who knows? (laughs) 
Um, no, I think it's really important. You know, I've been working with these issues for a long time and I love this idea of embracing extinction. Um, Stephen Batchelor wrote an article about that this past fall and he was finally putting these words to like, we know, you know, <laughs> things are getting bad and our actions probably won't make a difference, but we can still do the best we can just because we're going to die, just because our species is going to die out doesn't mean we should just act unwholesomely and act willy-nilly. Like when you accept that your results, you know, you have no control over the results, you can still act like a bodhisattva. You can still act wholesomely. And I don't need to fix the world. You are 100% right. The world will be fine until the sun engulfs it. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, it'll be fine. The cockroaches will be around and other species will be around when we're long gone. And But we can do what we can do right in this moment. And it's so liberating when you're like, you know what, I don't need to fix anything, but I'm still going to do the best I can to like treat this world with the respect it deserves. And not just like a piecemeal approach. I was thinking about the monastic life. What an incredible gift to the world to live so low impact and just, you know, get, get by with very little instead of like patting ourselves on the back for recycling and driving an electric car, you know? Like you can make a wholehearted change and really think like differently about how we're going to interact with this planet. You know, and we can do that now. We don't have to be an indigenous person 500 years ago. We could actually do that now if we really wanted to. So, so do you think, so Matt, do you think that um, if you practice with nature, meaning I mean, I didn't say what I exactly meant by practicing with nature because it would be different for anyone, everyone. I mean, each person. But say you decided, okay, I'm, the way you might decide, okay, I'm going to sit Zaza in, you know, half an hour a day for the rest of my life. You say, okay, I'm going to go outside and take a walk every for the rest of my life, no matter what the weather is or whatever, as a practice and and use that 30 minutes or hour or whatever to be paying attention. Um, then it's, do you believe that would be transformative? I mean, if, if you transform yourself, you transform the world, right? I agree for sure. I think it's each of our own decision. I love birds. I listen to the bird note podcast two minutes every day to find out about birds because that's yeah. my choice, and I love the natural world, and I think a lot of monastics love the natural world. I remember Tygen wrote the introduction for Dogen's Pure Standards for the Community. I mean, this has been around. This harmony with the natural world has been around in the monastic life. It's been around throughout many different religious or shamanistic or indigenous ways of life, right? So, yeah, but I think that's a personal choice. I, I'm not going to tell someone else what to do. You know, I think we can do it. So maybe we practice by sitting zazen. Maybe we practice by growing houseplants or gardening, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, or playing the cello. Yeah, I mean, there's really no one thing. This is a possible route. Sorry to interrupt you. No, I'm good. I want to hear other people. Thank you for your talk. I think it's very important to talk about this. So I'm really glad you brought it up. I think playing the cello would be a great route to, I don't play the cello, but in my fantasy, who else is raising their hand? People are smiling. I like that. 
We did it. We did. Oh, David Ray. Okay, great. Thanks, Yoshin. I don't really have a question. I just wanna I just wanna sound the note of appreciation. Um I love I love birds and trees. I know absolutely nothing about them. I have never learned to distinguish one bird song from another. But but I I've, I have held you know I've had friendships with trees, and I'm aware that like I never sit zazen without being aware of the bird song around me and how it's different from you know from from time to time. And just thank you for that sympathetic joy, you know uh, that 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 mudita of of you know the achieve the amazing achievement of of birds in in the world and and you know i i know i will think about that i know i, I know i'll think about you know how how far you know we used to have i guess we still have them those those oh what are they called the monk what are those birds that, that monk you know parakeets yeah monk parakeets. those amazing monk parakeets yeah in hyde park um so it's astonishing to share to share the world um with them I feel a fair measure of pessimism about our species. Perhaps I share that with you. Um, and, and I don't know, I, I feel tenderness around that. Uh, but thank you for your talk. I think tenderness is a great word. I think tenderness is something to cultivate. Tenderness, even toward our own arrogant species. <laughs> um, because... Uh, uh, well, for obvious reasons. Anyway, thank you, David. Nathan, are you there? I see your iPhone, but not you. Nathan is one of the people that came to our first couple of camping sessions and was a wonderful participant. There he is. Hey, Nathan. He's in Michigan, right? Not taught, I guess, is muted. So we have had, just to give an update about the um, haiku group. So haiku was a a thought of uh, something we could do as a sangha to, you know, connect with nature together. We've had two walks. Um, Mike came on one of them and wrote some lovely haikus. I don't think there's anyone else in this group that did, but half a dozen or so people have done it. And I think we're going to continue that if we, if enough people want to do it. Um, Oh, there's Mike. Read a haiku, Um, Mike. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I the the walk really inspired me. Um, uh, last fall, I read a book um, that was mentioned on from someone, a guest speaker who gave a talk here in the fall. I forget her name. Uh, the book was called "How to Do Nothing," um, and the book was about. It was written by this artist about. Um, people trying to escape from like a capitalist society or, you know, like how, how to, you know, better their lives or whatever. And, and can you really do nothing? I think, and so she explored, you know, people in the past, like hippie communes who had, you know, kind of escaped the world and, you know, how that didn't quite work. And so, um, but she made a really important point, you know, this, this artist would go, 
uh, regularly sit in a park. I, I forget where she lived, maybe Boston or something. Um, and, you know, first when she was sitting in this park, she really appreciated the fact that she was sitting in this park and um, it was quiet or calm or something. And, um, you know, she uh, wrote that, you know, oh, I, I'm sitting alone in this park. Um, and then she realized, like, well, no, of course not, because um, there's so many trees and birds and animals around. Like, um, you know, you're of course not alone. Um, and so she made a point to start learning the names of those trees and those birds and whatever she encountered. Um, and that really kind of helped change her perspective of what was around her. Um, they weren't just, you know, these objects that were background noise. You know, they were sentient beings um, who had experiences. And um, it inspired Inspired me, and I, I've been sluggish to start, but I do. And when we went on the haiku walk, you know, it's definitely motivated again to really start learning, um, you know, birds and go bird watching. And so I really want to thank you for that. Um, I appreciate that. Um, it was a wonderful experience, and I hope we get to do it again. So, and thank you for your talk. It was very wonderful. Yeah, this one's hand um, is up again. Yeah, maybe this can wait till later. Um, <laughs> you're the re you're the, our resident expert, though. Uh, what do we need to uh, do to best appreci appreciate the uh, cicada cicadas that are coming? The cicadas. Cicadas, yeah. Uh, you don't have to. You mean how can you go to see them, or uh, is there anything no, we can do I just, to? You know, we know really coming. I'm just, I guess I'm just asking you to comment on them. You know, I know I'm in for something. Uh, guide me. <laughs> well, when they, so just to say, in case people are wondering what the heck he's talking about. So there are these uh, creatures called cicadas. Some of them are annual and they come around every summer and make a lot of noise. But then there are these periodic cicadas, 17 years, every 17 years, they emerge from the ground where they've been. In, they have an interesting life cycle in huge numbers. I, I don't, I'm trying not to be hyperbolic, but really huge numbers, many, many zeros. Uh, and this year in Northwest Indiana, the so they, they're periodic in different places, different years. This year in Northwest Indiana is their year. I think it's two years before they're here. It's not next year, but the year after. And then uh, you don't have to do anything. They'll be everywhere. Uh, if you go, I mean, they may not be in your neighborhood. They, they might be in your neighborhood, but if you go to a park or a forest preserve, they'll be everywhere. Uh, they'll just come home with you on your clothes. They're totally harmless. They don't bite or anything. They're just coming out to mate. Uh, people do eat them. Um, and then, you know, they mate and then they go back underground for 16 years and come back again. It's just one of those many uh delicious natural history stories. Every creature has a story and it's biodiversity and uh, fun when it happens. Their strategy, and if you look at it from a biologist's 
point of view. Their strategy of doing it that way is they come out in such great numbers that even though they're very delicious and the birds and other creatures eat them, there are so many of them that enough survive to continue their species. So that's a, they sort of flood the world strategy rather than, anyway. Tygen has something to say about cicadas. No, I just have a, <laughs> I just have a question. I, actually, I used to see them when I was a kid. Their their shells would be on the yeah, tree yeah. in our backyard. Yeah, those are the those are the empty shells, right? Yeah, but yeah, it's like 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 their skin. They just kind of split yeah. from their skin. Right, but, right, right. I was going to ask you what they taste like. I have never eaten them. I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> oh. <laughs> But I think they say they taste like shrimp. I don't know. Has anyone oh. eaten them? I guess they roast them. I I, I don't know. I, I just remember uh, this is probably probably two two generations past when my daughter was a teenager, and uh, I was coming home from the forest preserves, and they were on. You know, they like come home on you. Uh, you can't really stop them they're, and they're harmless so whatever it's not like ticks or something she's like all my friends mothers don't have cicadas on their clothes <laughs> like, very 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 teenage response <laughs> it's like, they don't have cicadas in their kitchens <laughs> anyway but i think that's two years from now but it'll be a good way to practice with nature it's a good point um on. Maybe we're ready for the four vows about... Well, I see that Henrik has his hand up. Oh, good. I missed it. Henrik. Thank you. I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you about talking to birds. And it really deeply touched me about the fact that they travel so far away, you know, for the mating and then they come back. Um, To my mind, it's just almost unimaginable, you know. Um, the journey they take and in the circumstances that change, this is amazing. And but that um, but I, what I really want to talk about is um, say uh, comment is that you know when the pandemic broke out um, and the streets got so quiet, you know, and prior to that I was always running like between homework and job and responsibilities and walking the dog and all of it kind of like a jump one thing to another in my mind. But all of a sudden when I saw streets being so empty, you know, everything being so quiet and I felt like walking in an apocalypse world. And I was like, hmm, that's strange, you know? And, and I started walking without the headphones and eventually I was like, what's this noise? What is it coming from? And then I started looking around me. I couldn't notice it or I couldn't pinpoint it. And then eventually I, I looked I directly at something. And I, at the same time as I heard a noise, the bird was opening its mouth. <laughs> that's <laughs> great. Know, I was like, oh, so that's oh. the one part, you know. And <laughs> then I started noticing them in different shapes and colors, you know. And then all of a sudden I had a bird feeder by my window, you know. And then I had my desk by my window, Um and pretty much all my daily schedule was circle around uh, sparrows and their daily habits. So in the morning when they had the gathering, you know, like 
me having this uh, desk by the window, there was two huge pine trees. And I believe that they, they, they nested there for years. And I, I have never even noticed them, never heard them, you know. And it's like, I'm, I'm feeling like about two hundreds of them. So morning, there was a morning gathering when all they go and about gossip and probably plans the day. And then by the other side of the building, when I was a uh, dining room, there was a um, few small bushes, uh, but the way they grew, they uncovered, they, they covered the grass and the grass died. And that was only a sand. So like 50 or 60 of them was just taking like a, uh, sand showers, you know, and then I followed them through that habit, you know, and then eventually I looked in the different birds and I started recognizing more of them. Um, and I know you mentioned uh, haiku, haiku, um, uh, uh, morning walks. And uh, so do you have any plans to actually do like a bird spotting? Um, well, when we, when we do the haiku walks, we definitely look at birds. We look at everything that we encounter. And so we go to a park or the lakefront. We've been two, one on the lake and one in Horner Park. And yeah, birds were part of it. So it'll be, uh, we haven't set the date for the next one. It'll be on the uh, Ancient Dragon website though. But I think your story is an exact um, story of exactly what I was talking about. So you just had your awakenings by being in just putting yourself opening your eyes to what was in front of you you know you started out by taking off your earphones and listening and watching and so that's lovely what a lovely story thank you so much for for sharing that with us thank you what part of where do you live exactly what part of the region uh uh, the the story I told you about when I was still living in Logan Square. Logan Square, yeah. See, that's now right, right better. in the city. But now it's even better. I live in the Harold Heights, and there are people oh. around me. So now yeah. I have uh, a lot more opportunities. You know, I have like five minutes walk to the forest, which I take pretty much daily trip. You know, that was a big. It is a big part of my practice, and you know, I'm being accustomed to more to type of trees, you know, and what grows on them, what grows around them. Uh, Pro tip, what I discovered lately, uh, wild scallions are in season now. Yeah. Uh, So they are in my eggs, in my salads, in in my chicken, (laughs) and they are everywhere, you know, and best of all, it's free uh, and so delicious. So I hope that uh, some of you will have a chance to gather some as well. Well, I would just say QED. <laughs> Hen- Henrik. Is it pronounced Henrik? Yes. Yes, Henrik. It's, it's uh, demonstrated my theory. <laughs> Chris. Yes, thank you for your talk. I was just going to add, um, Tygen, if you've had uh, uni, sea urchin. Mm. Okay, so the cicada are like crunchy uni. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> you can learn anything at Ancient Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> Not since I was in Japan, but yeah, right. thank you. 
Well, thank you so much for your talk, uh, Gershon. Uh, really inspiring and connecting to things. Is, is it? Did anybody else have something you wanted to share or say or questions or anything? I did. I, I'll oh, say. Deborah. It's Deborah. Deborah. I'm quiet tonight. I, I I flew across the United States today, and as wow. I, I just wanted to share the. Um, I'm a nature lover, but as I traveled from the West Coast back here, I live in Pennsylvania. You know, I was watching the dryness of the earth, and it was very sobering. I saw many um, sections that where you could tell were riverbeds that were gone. Mm-hmm. So you get very aware of our fragility. But I just wanted to add um, one thing. It may interest the group. There's a book out called Migrations, and it's considered to be something called Echo Poetics, which is kind of a less structured story dealing with feeling, but it's a wonderful story. It's written by a Welsh writer. And it has to do with it has to do with climate change, but it's handled in a, a quieter way, and it may interest the group. And it's about um, following the Arctic turn. That's part of the story. So I, I just wanted to share that. And um, thank you for saying that about the dryness. Uh, I, I I wasn't joking about beavers. They they really really can help with that. Um, we just have to move over a little bit. <laughs> uh, it'll be such, it'll be so, the trade-off will be so worth it. It's, um, people are actually trying to influence the Biden administration to build beavers into the infrastructure bill as green, part of green infrastructure because they um, because our way of doing dams is so uh, unhelpful in terms of water supply for everyone and everything. Anyway, yeah, seeing it from an, in the air is terrifying. I haven't been in a plane for so long. I've heard that there are now beavers in the Chicago River increasing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so far they're not killing them, as far as I have heard. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> they, they tend to know how to piss people off. <laughs> um, but you have to look at the bigger picture. Well, maybe, Wade, we could do the... Uh... Bodhisattva vows and close. Sure. This group maybe doesn't need the words, but I'm going to give them to you anyway. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it, beings are numberless, I vow to free them, delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them, dharma gates are boundless, 
I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it.